one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, rational security listeners. A quick note up top. From one of your co-hosts here, Scott R. Anderson, we will be doing our usual end-of-the-year episode this year. We take your listener-submitted topics and object lessons and discuss them for our end-of-year episode. It's one of our favorite traditions here, and we would love to have you involved. If you have any topics you'd like us to discuss or any object lessons you want to share, please send them along to rationalsecurity at lawfarmedia.org and just let us know if we can identify you to thank you. And if we can, how you would like to be identified, we would really appreciate it. Just try and get it to us no later than the end of the day, December 19th, so that we can include them when we record a little bit early for that last week between Christmas and New Year's. Thanks so much. Well, no one has commented on my seasonal festive shirt yet, so I'm a little hurt. I do feel like you, I do believe you wore that shirt. In the, in summer the summer as well. <laughs> so I don't think that counts. I think that hurts you a little bit. It's my all-season tartan, tartan plaid, though. I like it a lot. There's a specific name for that specific plaid, as I recall. Well, I think the, it's McBrien plaid. Yeah, all oh, the... We, we, I <laughs> I, there is an Anderson plaid. It is my grandfather, who had visited you know, visited Scotland in the 60s or something, had a whole kilt uh, and like, it's the kilt and like the kind of sash thing. It's not called a sash, but it has a name that kind of goes over one shoulder, the whole kind of like... Scottish Highlands outfit made out of it, but it is, as I recall, like a hideous, hideous shade of like kind of yellow and green with a little pink mixed in. Uh, it is it is not something you would want to rock in a holiday shirt or any sort of festive attire of any sort. I think you should wear it to the office. I don't, I suspect my grandfather's a much shorter man than me, so I think the kilt would be not office appropriate. That <laughs> <laughs> would be my guess. What, do, what is the family attire of uh, Slovenia? I truly have no idea. I've been to Slovenia. It's beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful place. Everyone is very fashionably wearing like hot European attire and like tight jeans. <laughs> so I don't know. If, I don't think that's a traditional wear. <laughs> they were all very hip. I, it, well, Melania, Melania has a certain fashion sense since she's Slovenian. Exactly. Oh, I forgot she's Slovenian. That's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Wow, you're one there's step, a, one there's step away. There's that statue of her. There's a statue of her. And when I was in Slovenia this summer, I met a tattoo artist who claims to have his friend made the statue or the cast for it, actually. Uh, and... Wanted the commission, but was so ashamed that he destroyed the original afterwards. Whoa. This is according to him. And then in you know, two years when we have Trump, Trump to administration, be like, he loves that thing. <laughs> yeah, Still exactly. has it up yeah, in the yeah. corner. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Creepily keeps it in his living room. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. Thrilled to be back here in the Real Life Studio with one of my other regular co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And one of our stand-in temporary co-hosts and beloved regular special guest, Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare. Tyler, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You are down here in person, in studio. We don't have to 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 beam you in via satellites with the inevitable leg. No, you're you've abandoned the capital of the world, New York City, for our nation's capital. How dare you? And why would you during this lovely holiday season when New York is at its finest? <laughs> it, it's it's the IRL Tyler edition, 
I think. Oh, that it would be a better episode title. Yeah, so that's fine. Well, we, we, oh, we've okay, got a title right, we're yeah. running with. Uh, yeah, well, we're so thrilled to have you down here. We are doing a little bit of Lawfare uh, office festivities today, so we're happy to have Tyler and some of our other colleagues who usually work outside the D.C. area joining us back today. But we're also excited to have Tyler here on the podcast uh, as he has been working on writing and podcasting on an issue we want to talk about alongside a couple of other issues that have popped up this week in the national security space. So we are excited to have you here with us, Tyler, for what we are going to call the A Friend in Need is a Friend Security Guaranteed Edition in honor of at least one of our topics, arguably a couple of our topics. First up, you'll shoot your five eyes out with a BB gun. B-I-B-I gun, just to be clear. This one works maybe better in print. You also have to have seen A Christmas Story. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Yeah, A Christmas Christmas Story. Classic. From Ukraine to Gaza, some of the biggest controversies surrounding U.S. foreign policy hinge on the assistance, including weapons and intelligence, that the United States is providing to its allies. What makes these relationships so complicated? Topic two, the socket docket. Late last week, special counsel Jack Smith executed a power move, bringing former President Trump's appeal of the denial of his claim of absolute presidential immunity directly to the Supreme Court through what is often called the rocket docket and citing precedents from the Nixon era suggesting the Supreme Court should resolve the issue within weeks. What does this move tell us and how likely is Smith to win his case? And topic three, Netanyahu, President Biden, (laughs) President. I like that delivery. <laughs> that, one, that one works better out loud than on print, it turns out. It's a little Scott, hard. Scott was impersonating an owl there. Yeah, exactly. So. Scott was saying that this morning in front of the mirror over and over. <laughs> yeah, he was, indeed. I, I, I replayed that old Tootsie Roll commercial with the, with the owl. Uh, president Biden's bear hug of Israeli President Benjamin Netanyahu may be loosening as he has reportedly told donors that Netanyahu must go if Israel is to retain international support. How serious a move is this and what might it mean for the conflict in Gaza? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. There's been a lot of conversation recently about whether or not the U.S. should continue sending arms and assistance to Ukraine. We've seen in the Senate uh, there is a major holdup over whether or not that will continue uh, related to a desire on the part of Republican senators to link this to changes in border policy At the same time, um, the U.S. is also very enthusiastically transferring arms to Israel, which has raised controversy in a different direction um, with some critics, including uh, former State Department officials, arguing that these kinds of arms transfers are being used to potentially commit atrocities in the ongoing war on Gaza. There's another aspect of this as well, which has to do with the role of intelligence sharing, which has gotten less attention, but is also... I think pretty crucial when we're thinking about these U.S. relationships with our partners, how far those go and how we want to think about those entanglements. So, Tyler, I want to start with you since you've been thinking about this for a a piece you're writing for Lawfare. Stay tuned, listeners. To start off, let's focus just with Israel. And then, Scott, I want to compare to Ukraine. What has the controversy been regarding arms transfers and how are you thinking about this in relation to intelligence sharing as well? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think it's an especially good question because in some ways, arms transfers to Israel is just an extension of the status quo. I mean, Israel has been the single largest recipient historically of, of U.S. military aid. Something I've seen saw some figures like $3 billion annually adjusted for inflation on average the past 50 years. Of course, Biden, after October 7th, has requested a much larger package, I think something around $14 billion. But it's largely, you know, not only a continuation of Biden's policy, but almost every American president's policy, you know, for decades. But I think a few things have changed, which uh, have have merited this uh, intense 
scrutiny, I think, both in the public, in the media, and within government. I think a few of those things are that there's been an extremely high number of of civilian deaths and and physical destruction of Gaza. And I think people are making the connection that uh, many of those bombs and other weapons, tank ammunition, are of U.S. origin. I think another piece of the puzzle that has engendered this um, intense scrutiny is that it seems that the U.S. and Biden hasn't really gotten much in return in terms of, uh, you know, attempts to exert influence or, or, you know, influence policy of how Netanyahu is handling the war and what he's saying about afterwards. And I think one similarity to Ukraine in this case is is it doesn't seem like Israel is is winning the war. There's been a lot of perhaps, you know, military victories, but overall the war doesn't, uh, doesn't seem like it's going Israel's way. So I think taken together, that explains a lot of the scrutiny, um, the, you know, high level resignations. But I think another really important aspect of this is uh, something I'm, I'm writing about now and hopefully we'll, we'll publish soon is that um, while a lot of the arms have gotten uh, scrutiny, which is totally understandable, it's very visual, it's, it's very, you know, visceral seeing the bombs, it's, you know, you can see it. But another piece of the puzzle um, is intelligence sharing, which is, I think, just as crucial to Israel's ability to wage war and, and to do what they're doing right now, uh, but doesn't get the same attention for many reasons. I think intelligence, it's, you know, it's not public. You can't see it. Uh, it's, a lot of its value derives from its secrecy. But it's it's really helping direct where the bombs are going, not just the bombs themselves. So that's what I, I would say. I think I think we need to look both at, at the arms themselves and the intelligence that are directing, directing the bombs. But the, the scrutiny, uh, I think, makes sense, given how the, the war is panning out over the past couple months. But Scott, I'd love to hear your, your you know, compare and contrast with the arms transfers to Israel versus Ukraine, and then, you know, what you know of, of intelligence sharing as well. Sure. I mean, the two cases right next to each other really, I think, illustrate the tensions and different perspectives you have on these sorts of relationships. In Ukraine, we are in a situation where there is a lot of pressure that the administration and, frankly, a lot of people on the political left, not not the more the, the kind of further left, a little more isolationist camp, a lot of Democrats, essentially, backing right. the Biden administration. Right. When, when you're talking about both Ukraine and Israel, you need to slice the gradations on the left yes. pretty finely. Exactly. It's not it's not uh, quite the binary that it is in other contexts, or if, if it ever is. But in this case, where a lot of people who I think are traditionally might be more concerned about whether it's international law restrictions, human rights issues, civilian casualties, um, not that plenty of folks on the right aren't concerned about it either, but they tend to be less vocal about it or less issue, particularly in the context of these foreign conflicts. Here, this is a case where there are a lot of them are actively pushing to give more weapons to Ukraine. And we're not just talking about more weapons. We're talking about more weapons that are some, – including some weapons that are in the past at least have been points of concern about how they're used. So cluster munitions is one of the basic examples we've seen in the last few months where the Biden administration ultimately approved the use of cluster munitions. And the logic was you know, even though they are kindly widely reviled by a lot of states uh, in the international system – the United States and certain other states keeps them in their inventory because they do have strategic uses basically in creating big minefields um, that are hard for groups to cross that Ukraine could have very good big use for it. And then most importantly that like Ukraine is operating on its own territory. It should make decisions about you know where the trade-off is in civilian casualties and the risk of civilian casualties for years moving forward that cluster munitions presents. So basically it's saying there's a lot of deference to the Ukrainian government about how they should be using these arms in this particular context. Here in Israel, we have a situation where the status quo has been a lot of deference and that is getting the United States in some trouble potentially, at least politically, uh, if not legally, because a lot of people are raising concerns that at least some of which are certainly colorable of Israel pushing the limits of international law and doing what it's doing with some of these weapons. 
And it comes down to essentially, well, how much you trust Israel as a reliable counterpart, uh, how much you trust the assurances you've gotten about how they're used, uh, about these how these weapons will be used to be comfortable giving these weapons and entrusting them to the discretion of this other actor. You've got a principal agent problem, a classic kind of principal agent problem. And the tools the United States uses to handle this usually are you get some set of assurances. And I should note this applies kind of in the intel context too as, as I understand it. Um, and this is not a secret. This is this is, this is is kind of widely known. This is how these things use, are, are generally operate. You degree as, receive a set of assurances that are the conditions on, on which you are giving certain types of information. And then you have to do this evaluation saying, okay, we're getting these assurances. Now we have to monitor and evaluate like are we actually seeing these assurances met? And that's supposed to feed back into this process. Um, the problem is that you know there's no clear bright line rule about how to feed those back into the process. Always, um, you know, there, you can set up bureaucratic limitations, you can set up processes, you can set up kind of internal regulations about steps that are supposed to trigger reconsideration and, and things like that. Have been tried at various points, but they're always subject in the end to a high degree of presidential and executive branch control. And these are usually cases where you are seeing active fighting is where these these concerns really arise, where there's a strong political and strategic interest um, that is often driving any background pressure against whatever these other processes are. And I think we see that very much in play in both contexts um, in that there's a political drive to do certain of these things. And you see that uh, kind of interacting in a weird way with these processes that in a neutral atmosphere are supposed to be ensuring that you're getting credible assurances are being abided by. There's space for criticizing that, certainly. Um, I also think, to some extent, it's a little bit of inevitability of the process and, importantly, kind of built into the process to some extent with Congress. Uh, you know, Congress gives, actually, the executive branch a lot of discretion, uh, and then over particularly the sale of arms and intelligence sharing effectively. And then there's kind of handshake arrangements that are informal and not super legally enforceable or even embedded in statute that give Congress a lot of review authority. But that does get kind of skirted and skimped and adjusted at times. And often in cases where the administration is not worried about Congress actually objecting. And so there's the because they're kind of informal, there's a little bit more willingness to kind of move things along. And I think we're seeing signs of that happening here. But it opens up the whole system to skepticism and criticism for people who say, look, these rules are supposed to be primary values. We're not supposed to compromise them or see them traded out for broader strategic concerns and considerations. Let's dig into the distinction between thinking about intelligence sharing and thinking about arms. Because Tyler, as as you point out, uh, well, the latter has gotten more attention than former has received less, even though, as we're describing, they're very much two sides of the same coin. What are the different policy considerations that go into these things? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I, I think first, one thing I, I'm trying to do in my piece is just sort of lay out what we, what the public does know about the intelligence sharing happening between um, the United States and Israel, um, because I think this has been pretty diffuse and one of the hardest things to sort of glean. As I've said, in you know, in the case of weapons and arms, it's 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 very visual. I mean, Gaza is a very small place. We can see with you know the news reports and the videos that are coming out, like what's happening with the weapons that are being used. Intelligence, it's a bit it's a bit harder. So I think one of the first news stories that caught my eye was uh, a very short, I think, five hundred word or so um, news story in the New York Times, where they were reporting that U.S. drones were flying over Gaza, ostensibly for uh, recon uh, for hostage. Uh, rescue and and two Pentagon officials went on record saying as such. Um, they said the goal was to assist locating hostages, monitoring for signs of life, and passing potential leads to the IDF. It's impossible to say whether that uh, the intelligence gathered was limited to that purpose. Um, but I think a very interesting 
kernel of that story was that the defense officials went on record saying that this was the first time U.S. drones have ever flown over Gaza, um, which seemed like a suggestion that the U.S. Uh, and Israeli intelligence sharing uh, has you know, reached another level after um, potentially falling out of step the past few years. Yeah, but before we go more into that, I, I found that really striking in part because of what it suggests about U.S. faith and Israeli intelligence capabilities in Gaza and perhaps Israel's own faith in its intelligence capabilities in Gaza, which clearly did not work for one reason or another in the run-up to 10-7. Right. I, I, I've seen reporting that that has suggested that since 9-11, really, the U.S. intelligence services have outsourced intelligence gathering on, on Hamas and other Palestinian militant groups entirely to Shin Bet and, and um, the Israeli intelligence services, you know, on the assumption of, of their strength. And I think that was probably true for a long time. But of course, October 7th has, has you know, shifted that paradigm. And so now I think you see CIA Director Burns in the region. You see the drones flying over Gaza, U.S. drones rather. You see the U.S. declassifying intelligence to sort of support some of Israel's claims. You saw that with um, the the claim of um, the command and control node under Al-Shifa Hospital, where the Pentagon essentially said that their intelligence um, confirmed that. So I think you see um, the the U.S. and Israeli intelligence services coming back together after a couple of years of perhaps falling out of step during the, the early years of the Biden administration. So I'm not sure that's actually how I would read these reports exactly. It, there's a really different capability set. I mean, first off, Israel has pretty substantial oversight, overflight surveillance capability. I, I, I can say anecdotally, I remember driving at one point through Israel on a trip there a couple of years ago and actually like driving by a predator drone as it landed uh, next, next to us uh, very strange, very openly, not not shy about it, uh, which is very strange uh, that they were operating. And so like, you know, the, it's a very high tech military, very vested with a lot of U.S. and its own locally developed technology. You get a lot of those tools. I, I suspect there's other things going on about the way United States is being developed, developed and deployed here. You know, one possibility is that the United United States has developed uh, certain types of software and combinations of cameras. This has been reported on pretty heavily um, from doing years of urban operations, but usually in Iraq and to some extent Afghanistan, where they were tracking things like militia cells that were engaged in kidnapping operations and uh, would essentially hover a aerial surveillance flight over an area and then use certain types of camera optic equipment and software, which is probably far advanced in the last 10 years um, than it was when the story was reported a while ago, um, to track people and actually see where people are moving on the ground. So my suspicion is it's some combination of maybe some very specialized capability like that that maybe the Israelis didn't need or that they just hadn't like fully invested in or don't have a level of confidence in, combined with the Israelis obviously taking the hostage situation very seriously. They may not be less concerned about American hostages versus other hostages. And they may uh, in particular, look, they've, they have kind of uncharacteristically for Israelis, like this whole military operation is premised on the fact they're willing to accept high levels of risk to the hostages. And so maybe the U.S. administration is saying, let us commit some more resources to this hostage location effort, particularly around American hostages. The third possibility is, frankly, it's just, there's just a resource constraint. These things are really expensive. They're can only do certain things at a time. You know, they're limited platforms in terms of the, the different types of whether it's weapons or surveillance equipment that you can put on them. And there have certainly been other situations and other conflicts that I've been involved in to various extents where it's very clear there's a major resource constraint just for the sheer number of these things to maintain surveillance. And so I wouldn't be surprised if the Americans are just cycling some in to you know, supplement the resource availability, particularly, frankly, because they're Israel, of course, not just dealing with Gaza. They're dealing with concerns over southern Lebanon, northern Israel, 
over the West Bank to some extent, although it's a little bit different. Um, but my suspicion, they actually like probably have all fronts, their own in- internal capabilities are being pushed. So uh, that's what I suspect. I doubt there was ever any serious misstep between Biden and the Israelis um, in surveillance leading up to this. Americans probably were less involved in operations in Gaza because they've always been a little skeptical of operations in Gaza. So there, that, there is probably that element there too. This is new in that regard. It's a fair point. And I also wanted to qualify now, now I'm backpedaling on my own points, but qualify one of the other points of evidence I, I put forth to sort of suggest greater coordination of CIA Director Burns in the region. I mean, it's probably true that he is helping to coordinate intelligence gathering between the two countries, but I think it could also be a suggestion of the Biden administration's reliance on him as a sort of like Swiss Army tool diplomat totally. who can, you know, work a lot of angles and, and not necessarily the just the intelligence one. So it's a fair point to to sort of to qualify that that clean narrative of falling out of step and then October 7th happening and, and they're back in lockstep. You're, right, you're very right in that it's, it's more, much more complicated than that. Scott, I want to turn to you to talk a little bit more about the policy and legal restraints here on intelligence sharing. One issue that has come up, I know, in, in Tyler's work um, in a podcast you did on arms transfers is the assassination ban. There are other constraints. How are those playing in here? Sure. You know, when it comes to intelligence sharing, it's a little bit different from arms sales uh, and transfers, although they are share similar logic and that it all does come down to assurances. Intelligence is a little different because it is a case where if you are providing really operational, actionalizable, to make up a word, uh, intelligence uh, that you know somebody could take and like saying this target is here and then they're going to take that and attack somebody, you're so proximate to the actual act of war, the actual use of violence there. Your international legal culpability, the argument that you have international legal culpability is much higher. That's not usually the case with arms sales and other types of security assistance, but it sometimes can be. So like if you are giving a very specialized type of armament, I guess hypothetically, that you know could only be used for one purpose and you know the person you're giving it to wants to use it for this purpose. Maybe they've even said as much in this hypothetical, right? Then there would be an argument about saying, well, you knew they were going to do this. So you can't escape if that was internationally unlawful. You have some culpability there. So it's like the difference between me giving you a gun and then you shoot Tyler versus me giving you a – My GPS coordinates. Yeah, Tyler's Tyler's assassination coordinates as Elon Musk would call them and a gun that's preloaded with Tyler's biological signature and can only shoot Tyler. Exactly. To put it on various different parts of the spectrum. Why would you do that? It is it it is you know it's, it's the proximate cause uh, sort of relationship which like you know we're familiar with from from sort of torts uh, context in U.S. law uh, international law has kind of similar concepts that that go in to simplify it somewhat dramatically um, so intel sharing always has that element especially when you're talking about like really operational uh, type intelligence really ground level intelligence which is probably a lot of what um, they're aiming at Gaza and in Ukraine in this context right and probably a lot of it is being used for certain types of targeting there's usually a degree of distance that's put in in terms of the information provided. Maybe it's the level of granularity, which is provided. There's also a lot of concerns about sources and methods. You know, we have very close allies called the five eyes relationship, um, which are very close allies with whom we share the highest level of intelligence, um, including substantial sources and methods information. But even with them, not everything. And then everyone beneath that is a substantial step beneath that. And Ukraine and to some extent Israel are like substantially beneath that probably in terms of what we're willing to share. So, uh, you know, it, it, it is it's there's a lot of constraints on what you can share and how you can share. Um, I have no doubt the U.S. government does the evaluations to say, are we comfortable with these military operations happening? Are they something we have the domestic legal authority to engage in the United States? Like, is this something that that is, if it's pursuant to you know a counter-ISIS mission, okay, well, we have an AUMF, so we could go and shoot ISIS ourselves. So it's a lot easier for us to share intelligence that we think is going to be used for that purpose. With Gaza or something like that, you would need 
essentially presidential sign-off that this is something that the president's doing with his Article II authority and, and authorizing or would authorize. It's not the same as using military force, but I think it's a similar kind of constitutional root argument. And I'm not sure they're willing to go that far in this sort of case um, without that sort of like statutory hook or, or some other statutory authorization. So there's these like statutes that authorize types of uh, advising and assisting missions that have become controversial because DOD has been using them to uh, help direct counter, you know, insurgent operations in different contexts, stuff like that. Um, you need some sort of hook of authorization. And the same way you can get constraints. So like the assassination ban is this clear express constraint. So that's something they have to avoid carefully in this sort of space. These are all complicating factors on this terrain. The core question still comes down to what assurances are you getting? What assurances do you think you need? And how credible do you find them? As that credibility assessment, that's really hard because a lot of it's kind of subjective and requires you to, to do these difficult analyses of uh, saying, particularly when it's hinging on international law, like, do we think what they're doing is unlawful under international law? And the thing to bear in mind about international law, we talked about here before, is that there are clear rules, there's clear principles, but they, in the end, it is about how reasonable the decision maker's decision is about use of force based on the facts available to them. So it's super fact specific, fact intensive, and to some extent, sub- subjective. Um, it's just a really, really hard line to firmly say this has been violated short of something obvious like, you know, killing civilians in cold blood without any foreseeable military target. The Israelis don't do that. The Israelis always have an argument about why what they're doing is legal. You can question it. You can question whether it is really consistent with the principles or whether it pushes too far. And particularly what you can do is what Mark Latimer and some other people have done for us at Lawfare, I think really effectively is to compare it to how the Americans or the UK or others approach similar questions in other conflicts and point out the Israelis are doing this really differently. But it's hard to say firmly, no, this this is unlawful. And so it's hard to say, no, this assurance is like completely uh, blown at this point. And so it, it ends up being a much more subjective assessment. To turn back quickly to, to arms transfers, I think another reason for scrutiny that I didn't quite put on the table at the beginning of, of this discussion are the legal and policy restrictions domestically that are on the books that don't seem to be being followed in terms of arms transfers. So, you know, Leahy law considerations, human rights considerations, you see the Biden administration rushing to send as many arms as possible to Israel. At least that's how it appears from the outside. Um, You have Secretary of Defense Austin telling Congress that they're trying to send weapons at the speed of war. And on the one hand, you know, it makes sense from a military point of view. You want if you were the United States and you, you want your ally to have as much ammunition um, for, for, for maximum you know, maneuvering, I guess you could say. But it seems to be at the cost of uh, not only you know, high civilian death, but also of uh, sort of ignoring our, our own restrictions on, on weapon sales. And I think this is, this is uh, the exact reason that um, someone like Josh Paul, who has overseen over a decade of, of arms sales, many of them controversial, uh, including to the Saudis in, in the intervention in Yemen, uh, resign uh, in protest that this was this seems a bridge too far. Um, this is a new situation, a new very troubling situation, and so I think that's been uh, much harder to sell to the public in the Israel situation rather than uh, the Ukraine situation. And and I'm just I'm just curious, you know, whether this war will spell the end of this, you know, sort of idea of of a blank check to Israel or you know, the Israel, Israel exemption or Israel exception to, to some of these um, restrictions on arms sales. Um, it does seem like there is some shift. I'm not sure of the scale, at least within the State Department and, and in, in public sentiment. I'm not sure if it will result in, in meaningful change in the short term. But I do wonder if, if this does mark an inflection point in, in the U.S.-Israel arms transfer relationship. Fair point. 
Well, let us go from discussions of possible war crimes to the discussions of a former war crimes prosecutor. That is, of course, our own special counsel, our most special of counsels, Jack Smith, uh, the man who is investigating former President Trump for his involvement in January 6th and those around him, among other items like mishandling classified information, things along those lines. We saw Mr. Smith make a big play last week, uh, a pretty exciting play along the lines that we've seen the government, among others, pursue more frequently in these last few years in a somewhat controversial move, but that he is leaning into in this one. And that is, of course, he's going straight to the Supreme Court. Uh, we saw last week Judge Tanya Chutkin reject his arguments that as a former president, he had absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for the various actions he was involved in around January 6th and 2020 election. And she rejected that quite handily. He then suggested and indicated to the court his intent to appeal and argued notably um, that the trial had to be stayed while that matter was up on appeal. Um, but instead of waiting for it to work its way through the D.C. Circuit and then possibly the en banc D.C. Circuit and then to the Supreme Court potentially if they granted cert, Jack Smith went straight to the Supreme Court and said, hey, Supreme Court, you need to review this. And not only that, if you look back at how your predecessor approached similar issues in the context of former President Nixon – you will note that they had this resolved within a matter of weeks because they thought it was important enough uh, in what I think is a, a fairly compelling historical anecdote. Quinta, let me turn to you on this. Tell us, how how big a move is this? Um, how how unprecedented and how notable is this in terms of where what it might mean for the prosecution? And what do we make of the odds of this actually succeeding? And, and to further uh, paint the picture, I think it's safe to say that this move has thrilled the legal community. To quote a few snippets from... Margaret Sullivan's Guardian column, she's called it, quote, a gutsy, momentous decision, a, quote, bold legal maneuver from, quote, tough guy who has prosecuted war crimes in The Hague. And Harry Littman on Twitter said it was, quote, a huge and possibly brilliant move, a game changer one way or the other. So with that, I'll, I'll take it up to you, Quinta. So I want to acknowledge before I start that there's a little bit of what I would call, and I think what I have called previously on the podcast, a Gorpin Bleemer problem with this. I'm referring, of course, to the fabled <laughs> clickhole article about, uh, I think the title was something along the lines of Mueller flips Gorpin on Bleemer and it's not even lunchtime. <laughs> uh, so the, the Gorpin Bleemer problem, I think I'm cribbing this from either Chris Hayes or Adam Serwer, so shouts to both of them is when something potentially important happens in a Trump-related situation, but you have to be so far down the rabbit hole to understand it that it might as well be in linear B to the average person on the street. So acknowledging that this may be a Gorman Weaver situation, I do think it matters. Here is why it matters. As we've talked about before with Ben Wittes, the question of presidential immunity from prosecution for the January 6th case was always going to be a potential spoiler because of our old friend criminal procedure. Trump was able to raise this immunity argument pre-trial, which means that it allows him a way to string things out and potentially run out the clock because, of course, if he wins the 2024 election, he can then take office and get rid of the prosecution altogether. So he's always been trying to beat the clock. Putting this motion for to dismiss on grounds of presidential immunity on the table in the district court level is was the start of that process. If you are Trump, what you want to do is – so at this point, we've had a district court ruling saying, nice try – if you're Trump, what you want to do is string this out for as long as possible. So have a really nice, long, leisurely briefing, oral argument in the D.C. Circuit. Let's say you lose that. Maybe you take it on bonk. 
that probably doesn't go anywhere. Then you take it to the Supreme Court. Then let, let's have a couple months to think about it, you know? And now before you know it, it's like August and we still don't have a ruling. And the trial hasn't moved forward. So from Jack Smith's point of view, what he wants to do is basically deal with this as quickly as possible. I will say I certainly did not see this coming. Um, my guess was that was going what was going to happen was that so we had this district court ruling it was going to go to the DC circuit DC circuit would probably uphold the district court ruling for reasons we can talk about Trump would appeal it to the Supreme Court my guess would be that was going to be that the Supreme Court would want none of it um, and then we would all be able to move forward Smith is basically short-circuiting that process by saying let's just get this out of the way tear off the band-aid put it on rocket fuel and I think that is important in a couple respects. One is that it sort of goes around Trump's efforts to string this out if, of course, the, the court actually does grant the petition for cert before judgment, which we don't know. They've, they've granted the motion to expedite the briefing on the petition for cert before judgment. Um, so we'll get a decision on whether they want to decide sooner rather than later. Uh, so if he's successful, we'll be able to kind of put it on rocket fuel in that sense. I think it's also, frankly, a show of confidence on Smith's part that he thinks that he can win over a majority of the court on this issue. That is – I mean I don't know what you think, Scott. I feel like I can count a maximum of two votes for Trump's position here and that may be pushing it. Um, so I think that that's probably a fair assessment on Smith's part. But it's definitely like it is definitely a gutsy gung ho move. I don't know if I would say it's like the greatest thing since sliced bread, but it it is definitely a show of strength and a show of confidence. And it potentially removes one of the big obstacles that was in place to actually getting Trump's trial started on March 4th, as Judge Chicken in the district court seems determined to do. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I completely agree with you. I think this is notable, interesting, not entirely expected, but also not like wildly revolutionary. I mean, what he's doing is a is what was come to be known in large part because of our our friend and, and occasional colleague Steve Vladek has written all of this at length, including in a, a book that came out earlier this year, if I recall correctly. Good um, book. You should read it. Good book. Uh, I haven't read it, if I'm being honest. But but if I hear good things, uh, called The Shadow Docket. It's this idea that Supreme Court has just proven itself much more open in this kind of late stage of the Roberts Court to just taking matters up without lower court briefing. That's something the Supreme Court has traditionally been reticent to do, although it does has done it in the past. It's not entirely a new phenomenon. What's new is the frequency and the with which it's doing it, and particularly around like highly contentious issues. Usual arguments against doing it are that well, it, it just kind of you know short circuits the whole process. Um, even though the Supreme Court is the ultimate decider, the Supreme Court exercises discretionary jurisdiction. It doesn't 
actually rule on the vast majority of court cases that are, are made, those are resolved by the lower court of appeals uh, that exist around the country. And so – you know, usually most issues get resolved there. The Supreme Court doesn't have to deal with it. So it's just making more work for the Supreme Court when they do stuff like this. And then importantly, you usually have layers of briefing and argument um, from the appellate courts and from the trial courts and then potentially from an en banc hearing at the appellate court level that feeds into the Supreme Court proceedings. So you basically have a ton more exploration and opportunities to look at, comment, and think about all the different issues, that's really valuable for the Supreme Court in weighing these issues. It gives them you know, the fullest possible picture. You don't have that when you fast-track these things. Uh, and so you know, that is a downside for actually reaching a good decision. That said, there are obviously cases where it's kind of appropriate uh, and Supreme Court's always recognized that. They've been willing to do this around other cases. And like this seems like a good argument to say it's there. I, I just was surprised. I knew former President Trump wouldn't want to do it for the reasons Quinta noted that like they're trying to drag this out. So they had no interest in doing it. And I kind of thought Jack Smith might have been happier with his odds at the D.C. Circuit um, than at Supreme Court because he drew a pretty favorable panel, although I doubt he knew that before he decided to pull the trigger on this because uh, he had Michelle Childs, Florence Pan, and uh, Karen Henderson as the three-judge panel. Henderson, uh, you know, I suspect m- might have taken issue with Judge Chuckin's opinion. Childs and Pan are friendly Biden appointees um, who probably view it similarly. But, you know, the, the tricky part here is I will say Chutkin may have made things a little more inclined to go this way because she had a very categorical ruling. She basically rejected the idea of any sort of really criminal liability for former presidents. And I think he might be right that the Supreme Court's not going to be excited about going that far. Um, particularly you think about people like Justice Kavanaugh, who is a former White House lawyer and very defensive of presidential prerogatives, as we've seen in other contexts. Chief Justice Roberts, similar, not quite as far on that line as Kavanaugh, but probably a similar sort of perspective. And then you see people like you know Justice Thomas, who has a very originalist view, and I wouldn't be surprised if if has a broad vision of presidential immunity in this space, uh, based off kind of like a broad vision of like you know what the founding framers intended. I don't really know, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised. Like he's one who I could see having a, a kind of idiosyncratic view because it's rooted in some sort of deep historical practice as he reads it, as opposed to something more contemporary. All that is to say, like I could see a, them seeing a lot more shades of gray around this issue than Chuck can allowed. And so if you were to let this develop through the lower courts, yeah, you'd have a much more data, but the odds are there's actually like might be enough votes because it'd be really hard for the D.C. Circuit to actually slice it the way the Supreme Court thinks they want to see it. And so they're going to get a D.C. Circuit effort to kind of if – I, if I had to guess what they would try and do is slice Chutkin's opinion a little more finely. And then if it's not sliced the way the Supreme Court wants it, there are good odds you get four justices who think they could do better even if they ultimately decide – realize they can. <laughs> uh, so And that's enough to grant cert. So they're going to grant cert anyway. And you're going to have to go through this whole process jumping straight to the end of the line. It seems to make a lot of sense. And I will note here, as I mentioned in my intro, they have a great historical antidote. They talk about United States v. Nixon, 1974, Mm -hmm. a presidential immunity case. And note that the Supreme Court took it up. I'm just going to read this quick session. I think it's so great. On May 24th, 1974, the special prosecutor in that case sought certiorari before judgment following the district court's denial of former President Nixon's motion to quash the subpoena seeking Oval Office recordings. That is, that's the basic motion here, this uh, certiorari before judgment. The court granted certiorari a week later and set the case for argument on July 8th, 1974. The decision issued 16 days later and trial began in the fall of 1974. So within two months, three months, uh, they had this issue completely wrapped up. That's a that's a pretty bold shot across the bow for the Supreme Court saying, look, your predecessors took this seriously and got this wrapped up in two months. You do that here. That's before March 4th. Uh, and I think that's really what Jack Smith's going for. Yeah, I mean, to engage in some the, the lowest form of Supreme Court commentary, which is vote counting. Right. I, I think I, I agree. Thomas is going to do something weird. 
I don't know what it is, but it will be weird. Alito, if you look at his dissents in Mazars and Vance, is going to find some way to argue that Trump is being unjustly persecuted. I think that's probably right. I think the more interesting – so let's let's set aside the liberals for now because I think that's less interesting. On the conservatives – here, here's my here's my bet. I'm gonna I'm gonna put it on the table. Rational security listeners, you can hold me to account if I'm wrong. It's gonna be seven two, possibly eight one. I'm not sure who the one will be. Roberts writing for the majority. Kavanaugh concurrence. I Quint and I were trading message about this earlier. I think that's right, but I may flip it because I, mm. I only mm. only because I could see Kavanaugh both because he's a former White House lawyer and he's a Trump appointee. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts seeing some virtue in him wanting, you know, him wanting to write uh, and being inclined to write. If he's in the kind of majority block and the other justices like saying, okay, actually he has a little bit more gravitas here. And if he's like kind of the lowest common denominator, if he's, which I suspect he might be, because I think he's the guy most likely to see this as a muddy picture and resist broad readings. If he wants to craft it as narrowly as possible, sometimes it's just easier to let that person craft it as narrowly as possible. Obviously, this. That can be upset depending on, you know, if one other justice of more seniority in the majority like wants to try and butt in line and do all sorts of other things. But the way this gets negotiated out, like I could see there being appeal of having Kavanaugh right if he's in the majority and, and wants to craft it really narrowly and crafts it in a narrow way that other justices can get on board with. Because I do think the one thing that Chief Justice Roberts in particular will want here and that we see an inclination for is he wants a narrow ruling with as many votes in the affirmative as possible with as few little splintering as possible. So the fewer concurrences he can get, the better. Dissents seem likely to some extent in this case somewhere inevitably. But you know, a 7-2 ruling would still be a pretty strong ruling for him. But I think it's telling that Scott and I are disagreeing over which of two conservative justices will write the opinion for an overwhelming <laughs> yeah, majority of the court. Exactly. Like Trump is not playing with a strong hand. And I am I'm honestly blinking exactly how they assign who who writes what. And I'm not sure how it would work in this particular case because it's, I don't know. It depends on how it's scheduled and sat and heard. Isn't it chief, chief decides if he's in the majority? That's my recollection, yeah. yeah. But then they also like, you know, are distributing decisions over the course of uh, a sitting. And so, you know, depends on what else it's heard and how they schedule it and things like that. So a lot of other factors could muddy up this picture. And I don't consider myself a close watcher of the internal inner workings of the Supreme Court. Like there are plenty of other people out there who are. So look at those people more on this. But this would be my guess. All the things being equal, I could see one of those two solutions. Kavanaugh and Roberts definitely seem like the people most likely to kind of lead in this sort of context. And Roberts, I suspect, is going to shape the outcome even if he is not the guy who ultimately writes. Well, Scott, I'm glad you flipped the bet because now we'll have a winner and a loser. Or two losers, I guess. <laughs> or two, or two exactly, losers, yeah. Which right. Which seems less likely. But, yeah. <laughs> exactly, um, exactly. I wanted to go back quickly to the some of the recent historical – the recent historical question of how this uh, – and S- Steve Vladek, I think, was um, quoted in, in maybe the Times about how this provision hadn't been used for 15 years prior to 2019. But last year – as of last year, had been used 19 times since – does does he get into that in his book about as to why, be, especially because as Scott laid out, the the downsides are, are are fairly numerous. This is for petitioning for cert before judgment, right? So I think what Steve's book does really well is show that what we're now calling the shadow docket because it's unspooky. <laughs> um, but it's a great title. It really is. Um, but what we could also call the emergency docket, right? There are legitimate uses. Of, like the, sometimes there really are cases where like you just need to move fast. Nixon is the obvious example here. I think there's a reason why Smith pointed to it beyond the historical (laughs) resonance. This strikes me as another one, just like the clock is ticking. If they don't move quickly, the situation on the ground is going to shift radically. 
what Steve's book points to is that really under the Trump administration, although because of a variety of factor, additional factors that predate, well predate the administration, the government became way more aggressive about pushing for the court to rule on the shadow docket before issues had a chance to be fully litigated. Um, so if you remember, there were all of these cases where they would just constantly push for interlocutory appeals before a circuit court had ruled fully on an issue. And part of what's the trend that Steve is identifying is the way that that use of the shadow docket by the court can have all of these sort of deleterious effects in in that it doesn't – often there's not a full briefing. The court doesn't fully explain its reasoning. You end up in all of these weird situations in COVID-era litigation around religious freedom issues with like churches wanting to have a full congregation and house despite uh, uh, restrictions on crowding um, in the sort of the heat of COVID restrictions. Um, that then you end up with lower courts trying to rule based on precedent that the court hasn't set out or isn't technically president at all, but then they get slapped down by the court because they haven't ruled along those lines. It creates a mess in all these different ways. I don't think that's what this is, right? Like these sort of expedited processes, there's a range of them. They exist for a reason. And I think that this is actually a good example of why they exist, even though we have seen them used uh, in a kind of expanded and I would argue, and this is what Steve's book is arguing, sort of an over hasty way that decreases the legitimacy of the court. I sort of think this is the opposite of that. Does that sound right to you, Scott? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, again, this is something the Supreme Court has done through its history. Like rarely, though, it just always took it as an exception. And that was because it saw it as a being to its own disadvantage. Because again, it was depriving itself of the development of these issues at the at the lower court level in a way that's often very useful and can often resolve them without the Supreme Court needing to intervene. And, and I do think that that logic still applies and maybe applies more broadly here. I mean, I, I mean, I think the, the the subtext argument, which I don't know if Steve makes in his book, but he might, uh, and and I think I've seen him make it elsewhere, or at least hint at it elsewhere, is that you know, the court's doing this. Because you have a new conservative majority that's trying to reverse all these oh, yeah. things. Yeah. And, and so it, it's it's not just that it's doing this. It's that it's doing it instrumentally because all of a sudden it clearly has this vision of itself replacing old cases, not trusting lower courts or wanting to step in and make these pretty dramatic departures from past precedent in a way that – lower courts can't do or aren't – well, the Fifth Circuit thinks they can. But most of the time, they're not supposed to because there's usually this thing called precedent <laughs> that they're supposed to be staying within the confines of. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it is – the instrumental use of it is problematic in other contexts. doesn't mean it doesn't have a role here. And this seems like a clear one. Uh, and look, I mean, the ultimate answer is, is is if this shuts down the prosecution, better to know now than later. Um, and then voters have – months to ponder over the fact that there is no criminal accountability coming for this particular zone of conduct. And, you know, we'll we'll see where that goes. But I doubt it. I don't think that the Supreme Court's going to get there. Very clearly, the D.C. Circuit wasn't going to get there. I think the inferences that Quinta and Ben have drawn in their own pieces we discussed last week um, from the uh, Blasting Game civil context suggest D.C. Circuit was not going <laughs> to buy and extend all this immunity to the criminal context. I don't think the Supreme Court will either. But we'll have to wait and see. From one political leader seeking to avoid prosecution to extend or re-extend his time in office to another one, this time in Israel, back to Israel rather, there have been news reports uh, coming out this week of uh, a potential 
hardening of uh, relationship between President Biden and Prime Minister um, Netanyahu after uh, an initial sort of unconditional embrace of Israel. Scott, you referred to it as a, as a bear hug. Uh, Biden seems to potentially be giving the cold shoulder um, to Netanyahu. So this all comes from comments that Biden made at a Washington fundraiser this week, during which he's usually known for a, a bit more loose talk, where he made uh, statements to the effect of, quote, Israel's security can rest on the United States, but right now it has more than the United States. It has the European Union. It has Europe. It has most of the world supporting it. But they're starting to lose that support by the indiscriminate bombing that takes place. Um, this use of indiscriminate caught many people's eyes. He also uh, not only disagreed with how Netanyahu is conducting the war, but also of what comes after, namely the difference in opinion between Biden's very strong preference that the Palestinian Authority uh, will play a very heavy role in administering Gaza post-war and Netanyahu's and his government's seeming uh, unconditional refusal of um, any any role for the Palestinian Authority in Gaza after the war's end. Scott, I'm, I want to go to you first. Uh, is this, you know, just a, a bit of loose talk that uh, Biden has become known for, or perhaps does this signal a shift in policy? Yeah, you know, Biden's known as somebody who kind of shoots from the hip, improvised a little bit, is a little gaff prone. Although that's something that actually I feel like his reputation he's kind of shaken a little bit since he's coming to the White House and the vice presidency uh, a few years ago. Like still occasionally comes up, but like it was much more of a thing. I remember when he first ran in two, what, 2008, I think. Um, that was kind of his, his, his big reputation. You know, I think Biden does these things strategically. I think it may be kind of like a a wily old man strategy. I don't know if it's it's a strategy that he runs by his national security advisor and national security council. Um, but we saw this come up in the context of Taiwan. Remember, you know, the official Taiwan position, uh, U.S. position, excuse me, on Taiwan has long been four decades. Uh, one, a strategic ambiguity saying the United States does not commit one way or the other, whether it would intervene on behalf of Taiwan if China were to attack, but it retains the capability to do so. And so it has that option still practically. Biden, of course, famously said, oh, no, we would come to the defense of Taiwan. <laughs> it's similar to a set of kind of like private remarks that I recall and then later reiterated in press briefing. And I think the camera then panned to Blinken's face looking fallen <laughs> yeah, exactly. and troubled. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, you could read this as as Biden saying, oh, this is, you know, him just not get, being on the same page as the actual administration U.S. position. But then again, he's the president. Like, and on both of these issues, the U.S. position is substantially dictated or at least controlled by the president's subjective judgment and perception of the issue. Unitary so, executive, baby. Exactly. And so, like, when the president communicates, oh, no, I do think I would come to the defense of Taiwan. Like, that's really notable, even if it's not an official change in position. Here, it's the flip side, like a big part of the bear hug strategy around Israel, as we've heard described, a justification for it or a factor contributing to it has always been Biden's own personal Zionism. You know, he's somebody who has been an ally of and a believer in the state of Israel since the 70s when he first kind of encountered it, traveled to Israel. And met Golda Meir. Met Golda Meir. Exactly. I mean, who had, in the 70s? With having your own political troubles in Israel at the time. So, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of a controversial, interesting parallel there. Yeah, um, somewhat reminiscent of our current mm -hmm. situation. Exactly. A little bit of a different take with who, Bibi. Who stepped down immediately following the 1973 war. Well, exactly. I mean, and, and that's the context in which I think these comments are arising, right? Like, A, Biden's never got along with Bibi. That's been an issue. Um, but I think he was less willing to court open conflict with him than Obama was. And as we talked about in the podcast before, the Biden administration, I think, has learn from and perhaps overlearn from the Obama administration's difficulty in trying to publicly sanction 
in very subtle ways, but in the U.S.-Israel dynamic, pretty dramatic ways, Israel and BB over settlements and other issues by things like allowing a U.N. Security Council resolution through towards the end of President Obama's time in office around those issues, that, that issue set, you know, they thought that didn't work, that if anything, that just alienated Israel a little bit more and made BB harder to deal with uh, and Israel harder to deal with. In fact, a better strategy is to embrace them publicly and channel criticism privately. Now we're seeing the limits of that strategy because the honest goodness truth is that like maybe Bibi's just a difficult guy or maybe he's somebody who's really committed to his own political futures or to this ideological um, line that he of the government that he's leading, which is one that is very contrary to U.S. policy. And maybe it's not an issue of uh, strategy in regards to you know which, which one is going to get our outcome. Maybe that's just an outcome you can't get while this guy is in control or in power. Now it's worth noting here like – Bibi's not in control of the military operation. Like that is being led by a war cabinet um, with Benny Gantz and other people involved. Um, that I, I think complicates it politically a little bit. But he is responsible for framing it. And his ministers that are in, responsible for other things around Israel and the occupied territories, like particularly West Bank, right? And the idea that you know Bibi has to go is not a foreign, an alien one. I think a lot of people who watch Israeli politics fully expect Bibi to be held accountable and ushered out of office as soon as the war in Gaza ends because that's what happened in 73 with Golda Meir with the intelligence failure, perceived intelligence failure that led to the 73 war. Clear intelligence failure here. Also, like Gaza was a product of Bibi's personal policy. Hamas's control mm-hmm. of Gaza was a product of Bibi's – it was a conscious product of Israeli national policy for the last decade and a half. There's not much gray area about that, honestly. And and that is very much a, a product of Bibi making a calculus that proved horribly and tragically wrong on October 7th. And there should be accountability for that, um, and for not just for him, for other people involved in that as well. And Israel's tradition is to do that after the consensus around the ongoing military operation has ended. But it creates this kind of perverse incentive that we talked about before, that Netanyahu has an incentive to go to bat and keep the conflict going because that's maybe gives him the, op- the only opportunity he has to kind of recover his reputation. So, you know, long story short, I, I think this might be Biden signaling to the Israelis or to others hey, look, like he's a problem and maybe this accountability can't wait to the end of this operation. I um, remember the war cabinet while Benny Gantz is there, like it doesn't have other people from the opposition. Like Yair Lapid's not really involved, his faction. Like it is still a pretty conservative and particularly like military establishment sort of panel um, that has its independent power base but you know, isn't broadly rooted in in sort of the broader opposition that has beat um, Netanyahu in recent elections only to then be defeated by him again. Maybe it's trying to send to those figures saying like, hey, maybe this consensus approach only works so far. Like you need to do something about this government and we can't just wait to this operation to go on forever because again, there's no clear end state. There's no point where they said this is what it ends. They could drag it on forever if they really want to. That said, the other other context I will just flag, the fact they said this to donors does complicate a little bit because also Biden has a clear incentive to communicate to Democratic donors that we back Israel but we don't go too far. We're worried about civilian casualties and we and, and, and we don't like BB. Because uh, like m- most, frankly, even supporters of Israel and the Democratic Party have issues with Bibi. And so it's possible he's playing that audience as well. But the fact is that in the press and is getting covered and frankly, it looks like it's got some like pretty detailed sources. And they said this in a place where they probably knew there would be media exposure. I, I think there's a strategic element of this. And just to just to jump on that point, I, I, I do also want to throw some cold water on this Biden snubbed BB narrative that the, the media, I think, is, is pulling out. Because if you look at some of his other comments— he said that Netanyahu needs to, quote, change. I kind of left it there. He also said in, in the same speech or the same comments to the donors that his commitment to the independent Jewish state is unshakable. 
He also said, uh, without Israel, Jews wouldn't be safe anywhere, which is a very odd thing to say as the president of the largest Jewish population in the world. He then, uh, I also wanted to bring up that Greg Carlstrom uh, from The Economist, he wrote on Twitter that administration officials told CNN, CNN had asked about the indiscriminate bombing uh, comment, and administration officials told CNN that Biden, quote, has no plans to shift its position and draw any red lines around the transfer of weapons and munitions to Israel. So I think it is, it, it was probably strategic messaging to Democratic donors. I think, you know, a lot of the Democratic voter base is is, is very dissatisfied, to say the least, with the handling of, of the war. But you know, I, I think if he, if he was signaling something, they were, they were fairly weak, milk toast signals, even if it was a, a bit of a shift. I will say I was also struck by the split screen of saying without Israel, no Jews are safe anywhere in the world. But yeah, I, I don't really know what to do with that alongside saying Netanyahu needs to change, which I read to me at least as saying, you know, I mean, he also said explicitly in these words, I am a Zionist. So saying, you know, I support Israel, the U.S. has unshakable support for Israel. At the same time, the way this guy is handling things is not working for us, which leads me, Scott, to a question for you, which is given those two statements, maybe in contradiction, maybe not, how much leverage does the U.S. have and how much, importantly, how much leverage would the Biden administration given President Biden's statements about support for Israel, actually use to shake things up. Because, I mean, part of the reason why Yair Lapid isn't in government is because he refused to serve in a cabinet with Itamar Ben-Gvir. Um, you know, when Ben-Gvir came into government, we had a lot of conversations about how the Biden administration was going to handle that. Um, they made some statements about, you know, disapproval and so on, but didn't push back super aggressively. So what would you expect to actually see here? Well, I think that's we have to wait and see because I don't think we really know because it's pretty unprecedented. Look, I mean, the Biden administration had a strategy going into it. That strategy has failed. I think we need to be well, So say, say what you mean by that. Well, I mean, they, they had a bear hug strategy. They thought that they went in, they showed strong support for Israel, frankly, probably rallied European support around Israel. Israel would appreciate it and they would give them enough of a window so they could temper some of the most problematic actions Israel was, was going to undertake. And we talked about on this podcast Anybody who follows us knew Israel was going to do things that was going to be a problem for it and for the United States in response to October 7th, uh, in some ways understandably, in some ways not. And they thought they could cabin and constrain that instinct. Um, we saw them immediately send over high-level visitors. We saw them immediately send in high-level uh, and specialized military engagement, intelligence engagement. All of this is the sort of thing you're saying, hey, like, let us in the room. Let's talk about this. Let's figure out the best way to handle this together. And most of those people left pretty quickly and were quoted in the media as saying, whatever they're going to do is going to be their thing, and they're not very happy with it. So you know, if you were betting on that, you, you, you didn't get there with that strategy. Maybe that's a BB-specific problem. It, I wouldn't be surprised if it is. Again, the guy is sharp-elbowed, and I, I fully suspect – like he likes having a U.S. adversary. He likes being able to say, hey, like I've put it to this liberal – Democratic uh, official in Washington, D.C., they're not going to get to boss Israel around just because they're our close ally. We're going to do what we have to do. And look, he leaned very closely into the Trump administration and the relationship with former President Trump because he knows that there's a chance if former President Trump is reelected, the U.S. policy is going to swing dramatically the other way and they're going to have lots of leeway around this stuff. So it's a it's a bet 
It's a bet that plays into his core political supporters, plays into people in the cabinet he needs to keep in his government to stay in office. Uh, And yes, by the way, he has his personal criminal liability hanging on his ability to hang in office as well. So, you know, maybe this is a a BB problem. Maybe it's a broader U.S.-Israel problem. But they do have to tack a little bit in their strategy. And I just don't know how far they're willing to tack. The one thing I would say is that the part of their strategy that may yet bear some fruit is that they got a lot of public – you know, legitimacy with the Israeli public. Uh, approval numbers in Israel for President Biden a month after October 7th were super high, way higher than for Bibi Netanyahu or for the current government. I don't know what they are now. I actually am going to look that up because I'm curious about it. But that does give you a little bit where maybe you can say now, hey, maybe we're going to start publicly criticizing you, Bibi, and signaling to Benny Gantz and others, you should get rid of this guy. And it's time. And this is only going to become bigger issues down the road. But it's always going to be in part because of Biden's, I think, personal preferences, in part because of their view of the U.S.-Israel relationship, in part because of the position they've taken themselves on or put themselves on already. It's always going to be a hint of bat- worse things to come without any specificity because getting to consensus around those much bigger you know, tools, sticks you can break out – is a big internal fight, has lots of external risk, and instead they're going to try and hint at it before you actually get there. The reason why, you know, the fact that the most damning thing we've seen about West Bank settler violence so far is visa restrictions, which is a very milquetoast, uh, (laughs) to borrow Tyler's phrase, um, you know, restriction. Uh, Not a meaningless one by any means, but like it's not economic sanctions. It's not a million other things you could deploy. Like, you know, it's a sign that this is a, a lot of threats right now, but the real concrete implementation, they don't know exactly what they're going to do. And it's coming going to come down the road and it's going to be a little while before it gets really severe. But maybe they don't have to do that to convince people in Israel, hey, it's time to get rid of this guy. Um, let's move on. And maybe that will lead to policy outcomes that are more in line with U.S. preferences. I mean, I wonder whether the easiest way to – if BB is the problem, the easiest way to get rid of BB is just to push Israel to end the war, Right. Like once once the war is over, Bibi's gone. I think Bibi's calculus is that the moment he, the U.S. and the U.S. calculus that they start to push the end of the war, all of a sudden he no longer has to justify the war except in terms other than the United States is forcing us to stop this. We have to keep fighting this for the sake of our own interest. Because there's not – look, there's not broad demand in Israel for a clear vision of an end state of this war because there isn't one. And the war cabinet seems fine proceeding without one at this point, even mm-hmm. though Benny Gantz strongly suggested early on that that's what he wanted. And so, you know, I, I, I suspect that picking a fight with the U.S. Democratic administration is something Bibi would be open to. And that would be a fight that would be a difficult terrain on in the domestic political sphere in Israel for the United States to win because I think Israelis are still deeply traumatized and constantly being re-traumatized. Like you look at Israeli media coverage of events of October 7th, which is are horrendous and more horrendous details are coming forward all the time that are incredibly traumatizing. You know, I think they still have a drive for this military conflict and still are seeing it as a necessary step, even if, you know, strategically it's not clear how it fits in a strategic picture or where exactly it leads or frankly how in the end it actually makes Israel and Israelis a lot more secure in the medium to long term. There's way more to talk about, but yeah. There's yeah. so much more to talk about. I also I just loaded up the Haaretz homepage and it says, Israel's foreign minister, war will go on with or without international support. Yep, there you go. And and just one really quick point. I'm, just, I'm also curious whether or not Biden has truly come to terms with just how little global support there is for Israel. Yeah, I mean, his comments to the and, donors and in the about European Republic. support yeah. is like, like, yeah, you, they do still have European support, but it's getting more tepid Circling by the Circling the drain. Yeah. Well, folks, that is all the time we have for this week. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Quinta, what do you have this week? 
Well, I've already recommended a book over the course of this podcast, which is uh, Steve Vladek's excellent The Shadow Docket. So I will second my recommendation. But I also have another book I would like to recommend. It is by Jeff Horowitz, who is a reporter who covers uh, Meta, the company formerly known as Facebook, at The Wall Street Journal. And it is called Broken Code. We just recorded an interview with Jeff that will hopefully be out in the Lawfare podcast soon so you can hear more about the book. But the short version is that he is the reporter who broke the big Facebook files story based on the leaked documents uh, taken out of Facebook by the whistleblower Francis Haugen. And I think what Jeff does in his Facebook reporting that is really different from a lot of reporting, almost all reporting on the company is treated as an organization with internal politics that need to be understood and that shape policy and also looking at the mechanics of how it builds its products and how those products actually run. And it turns out that once you do that and once you have all this supporting documentation from inside the company, you get a much deeper understanding of what Facebook is doing, why it's gone wrong in the ways that it's gone wrong, um, and what we do and don't know about incentives for how that might be fixed. So if you are interested in those topics, I highly, highly recommend Jeff's reporting in general, uh, but this book in particular. All right. Well, for my object lesson, I am, of course, continuing with my seasonal holiday season recommendations. Uh, and I have a movie one this year. This is, I don't have a sense. I'd be curious about your all sense of this movie because it is a movie that is a standby for me. But I keep meeting people who don't watch it or who think it's bad, including my own mother who described it as a bad movie the other day. And I think it Where is, is, this is going? actually the categorically <laughs> best, die hard. best holiday movie. Not Die Hard. Die Hard is great. Is it a holiday movie? I don't want to get into it. Mm. Uh, it's White Christmas. Do you guys watch White Christmas? I don't even know what that is. Okay, so this may not be a well, as well-known a movie as I, as I thought it was for a long time. I really thought it was up there with, like, It's a Wonderful Life as the best Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. White Christmas is the best Christmas movie, and everybody should watch it. Or holiday movie, because it's not even that Christmas. It's not really a Christmas movie. It's just like a general holiday good vibes movie. It's like – it is an Irving Berlin jukebox musical. So it pulls together a bunch of his – songs from a bunch of different musicals. It has insane, insane dance routines with Vera Ellen and Danny Kaye and Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney. It's freaking amazing. It's genuinely very funny. It's a little bit horny, which you need in any good, <laughs> any good holiday movie. It's so good. It was True. on at a, at a bar the other day when I was sitting there having a drink waiting for my kid to get out of daycare. Uh, and I was watching it and I was like, man, it's such a good movie every year. And I heard people next to me at the bar being like, what movie is this? What is this? This looks so tacky. And I was like, no, it's great. It's a great movie. So go watch White Christmas. It's phenomenal. There's also a stage show of it going around that I saw a couple years ago that I can't – I would not fully recommend. It's worth seeing because it has great songs and dance. But the movie's better than the stage show, I will say, even though the movie is ironically about a stage show. But check it out. It's a great holiday movie. My favorite movie of the year, White Christmas. I watch it every year. So check it out. Except for maybe A Muppet Christmas Carol, which is the other best. But White Christmas is my endorsement for this year. I'll also add uh, for anyone with a Jewish grandparent out there. It wouldn't be Christmas without the annual reminder that the best Christmas songs have been written by Jews. So oh, Irving Berlin, true. Uh, included. Um, uh, including all, all of Irving Berlin's music and Danny Kaye. I was very Ellen Jewish. I can't I, – very Ellen May also may have been Jewish. I can't remember. But Danny Kaye and uh, Irving Berlin. Nobody loves definitely. Christmas like the Jews. I'll, I'll just put it out there. There you go. There you go. Well, Tyler, with on that note, what do you have for us this holiday season? Uh, I was uh, thinking back to my other object lessons and I, I don't believe I've ever done uh, music – object lesson. So uh, in this sort of year in review spirit, I will put forth my absolute favorite album that came out this year. It's called The Greater Wings by Julie Byrne. 
Um, she's a singer-songwriter. Uh, it's it's her, her first album since 2017. In the interim, she suffered a great personal loss and, and kind of disappeared from the spotlight for a while, only to reappear with this like beautiful, moving album of grief and, and mourning. And uh, it's truly mo- some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard. I highly encourage you to listen. The I would say the the back half of the album is is even better than the front half. So if if you're not drawn in the first few tracks, give it some time. Uh, and if you ever get a chance to see her live, she's very ethereal and 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 uh, puts on a beautiful performance. So Julie Byrne, The Greater Wings, um, and I have the data to prove that it's my favorite album uh, according to Spotify. <laughs> I listened to it way too much this year. Well, a wonderful recommendation. I will check this out. I'm actually very excited about this because I have not listened to this album, um, but I listened to some of her earlier stuff a couple of years ago, as I recall, uh, and quite liked it. Um, so excellent. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But of course, Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for our links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. While you're at it, be sure to follow us on Twitter or X at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Visit lawfaremedia.org slash support for more details. Our audio engineer and the producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha. How, on behalf of my co-host Quinta and our special guest, Tyler McBrien, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye. 